Lord God, we thank you for this morning. We pray that you would be with us as we open your word, as we open your, uh, our catechism. And Lord, as we uh, look at prayer and continue to discuss it, we pray, Lord, uh, that you would bring uh, more folks to come and join us uh, over the next few minutes. We pray, Lord, that we would have a, a meaningful worship service this morning uh, and that uh, it would be something that glorifies you and edifies each of us. Uh, we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. All right, so last time, which was actually a month ago in two days, um, we were talking about question 109 of Keech's Catechism. What is prayer? And just as a little reminder, the answer was, prayer is an offering up of our desires to God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And we had talked uh, at some length about what prayer is not, and then we began looking at what prayer is, how we are to pray, etc. And last time we had gotten into this uh, phrase here in the catechism answer uh, for things agreeable to his will. And we had talked about that at some length. Uh, We talked a bit about... uh, our own wills and whether or not uh, we were limited to praying for things that we actively desired or if we should pray for things that we wanted to desire or thought we ought to desire. Uh, And I think at this point, a a nice inroad back into, after a few weeks uh, without studying uh, this question, uh, would be the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 183, which asks exactly this, who should we pray for? And there are a bunch of answers given, and each of them has a proof text. And maybe we can look up some of those texts as people might be interested in um, delving into them. Some of these seem kind of obvious, though. So if you're writing things down, poise your pen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk now. Here comes Aaron. I'm wondering if maybe one of the other preachers who preaches from this pulpit spits a lot or something, and people just every week come in and move it back a few inches, a few more inches, a few more, I don't know. All right, right, so who should we pray for? The whole church, and that the text given is Ephesians 6.18. Magistrates, 1 Timothy 2.1-2. Ministers. Colossians 4.3, ourselves, Genesis 32.11, pray for ourselves, brethren, James 5.16, our enemies, Matthew 5.44, and then there are two exceptions, who not to pray for. Not for the dead, and those are 2 Samuel 12, 21 through 23, and Luke 14, 22 to 27, which we should probably look at. Say those again. 2 Samuel 12, 21 to 23, Luke 14, 22 through 27. 14, 22 through 47. 27. Or those who have sinned unto death. 1 John 5.16. Now, of these, which of them are maybe not overly uh, obvious and and warrant some some deeper look and and, uh, reading of the scripture? The whole church, obviously, that's pretty clear. You all have to pray for the church. Yep. I only have time to write down. I'm not fast enough. Yeah, so can you list the whole, not the names of the... Yeah, I'm in the midst of doing that now. So the whole church is the first one. That seems quite clear. Uh, magistrates, the second one. The text there is 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. I can look it up if no one else is. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. Reads, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
Uh, so in that verse, we don't hear magistrates offered particularly as uh, a group of people. They don't name magistrates. Why do you suppose that's what the catechism says? Well, magistrate meaning like the, the government officials, the kings are Right, yeah, the magisterium as it, as it stands. Yeah. Uh, and that would be much more widely applicable, I think, in our lives. Who do you think when you read something like that? Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all, for kings and all who are in high positions. Uh, who comes to mind in our context? Well, president on down. Anybody who's serving in an elected capacity or an appointed capacity. I think in that situation, it wouldn't be anybody in an elected or appointed capacity because most of those aren't high positions. Okay. Yeah, I guess people who are sort of directing other groups of people directing policy, I don't know. Most liturgies are going to include a blank line at a certain point in, in the prayers to name the presidents, uh, to name the governor. Uh, sometimes you would also then kind of lump everybody else in, uh, the, you know, your mayor, all civil authorities. Uh, even perhaps some would say the police or others who are in authority over you in, in that sort of way. Um, for a, a government that is, you know, bottom up of by and for the people, there are an awful lot of high positions we could be praying for uh, regularly, I think. And notice that it's not just pray for them, which is not that hard. Uh, in fact, I, I've seen uh, on bulletins uh, of, of churches leaning one way or the other, uh, on a prayer list, a president named, a sitting president, and then for his salvation. You're like, oh, okay, so this is like a dunk on that president, but then you can also get credit for praying for said president. But, I mean, honestly, there's not just pray whatever you want for them. Prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now you got to find something to be thankful about regarding people in high position and that becomes, I think, a little bit more difficult. Um, and I, I struggle with it sometimes. You know, it, it's easy when, when your preferred person is in power to give thanks for that. It is harder when, uh, you know, it's, it's the other per party or the other person or the other side of the aisle or whatever. And yet, that's going to be the case for every Christian sometimes. And we are all the time commanded to do this. Uh, I knew a, a pastor who had a spot in his study that had uh, a little framed photo, and he always put whoever was the president in there, and it said on the top, pray for this man. Uh, I guess you'd have to get a new frame if a, a woman were elected, uh, but he's with the Lord now, so that never happened uh, for him. But uh, I, I always thought, that's a cool idea, but I'm not a huge fan of the notion of someone walking in, and it's like it's like a government office or something, and here's this portrait of the president. But it is a nice idea, just a reminder. I'm commanded to lift up in prayer. And, and, you know, even if you have the lowest opinion of someone who's in power, remember, a little later down the list is enemies. So even if you're convinced that that person is the enemy of the people or something, you know, that I don't know if I can bring my... Okay, get over yourself and pray for... Uh, the the authorities, the magistrates, all who are in high positions. And the more you do it, I think the softer you'll find your heart becoming uh, in, that, in that area. Uh, so magistrates, ministers. That's uh, Colossians 4.3, ministers. It's in the middle of a sentence, so I'm going to start it too. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Okay, that didn't start in the middle of a sentence, but it did end in the middle of a sentence, and you didn't feel compelled to finish that it. That I may make it clear, <laughs> which is how I ought to speak. Okay. So that one maybe gets a little bit broad on the interpretation, but I don't know anyone who's going to argue against praying for ministers. This is Paul uh, asking for prayer for himself uh, and for his companions in their missionary work. So I think we could put, I mean, ministers of all kinds, ministers are a very broad term, uh, literally, meaning those who serve. Yeah. Uh, so it, you have those who are in authority and those who serve, and it's almost kind of top to bottom here then. Uh, Paul sees himself not as high and lifted up over his churches, but as 
there to serve them. Uh, so we do that. Uh, we Every week pray for those who serve. Uh, we pray for our missionaries. We pray for uh, our uh, executive minister. And I hope that you pray for me. Uh, there are, used to be a few people at Judson who told me every time I saw them, I pray for you every day. And those people are all now with the Lord. Um, so I need some new people. <laughs> I'm assuming most people do lift me up in prayer. Uh, it's just nice to hear it. Uh, it's encouraging. I don't know if you have people tell you, I'm praying for you. Uh, reach out and send you a card. I'm praying for you. Uh, I know I have that. I know that uh, I tried to do that. And it, it's, it's encouraging uh, just to know uh, that, that people are taking you to the, the throne of grace. Brethren, that one is wicked uh, Wait, is vague. Selves oh, selves, yeah, okay, selves, pray for selves. I mean, it's from Genesis 32, I'm sure it's some uh, really obscure thing. Uh, I don't know how on earth are we not saying most prayers in the Bible are for yourself. Uh, in fact, almost anything you pray for is going to be in terms of a prayer for yourself somehow. When Jacob praying for his family before That's he meets Esau, is. he's praying for, yeah, I assume so praying for himself and then his family. When Nehemiah is praying for the strength to ask to go back to the promised land and that the king will grant it. I mean, there's always, there's always a little self-interest in our prayers and I think we can't avoid it and it's not sinful in and of itself if we are still submitting our will to his will. God wants to hear our prayers for ourselves. He wants us to remember he's the one who cares for us. He instructs us to pray for our daily bread which means he is telling us it's okay to pray for the stuff you need. You, we don't have to couch things in these like pseudo humility packages of, well, Lord, I got to be able to take care of my kids. So that's why I'm asking that my car, you know, be fixed and I can afford it. No, just praying for what you need is okay. Just like any kid going to his or her dad is going to ask for what they need and expect mom or dad to say, yeah, here you go. This is, this is what you got. So praying for selves, praying for the brethren, for enemies. I think you all know that passage. I just have written down 544. I'm quite sure it's Matthew 544 from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says to pray for your enemies, to, to love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, which is quite a tall order. There's really a, a pretty wide spectrum in even just that kind of incomplete answer there, I think. Uh, and in it, we see all sorts of different people. Who might you add to that list? Of people to pray for? Yeah. A stupid question since I was late. What question are we on? Oh, right. We're, we're in the midst of looking at, uh, as part of looking at 109, uh, a question from the Westminster Longer oh. Catechism, Larger Catechism, okay. just to, to kind of ramp, on ramp okay. back into it. Who should we pray for? Who should we not yeah. pray for? Yeah. Thank you. Well, let's see. This covers a lot of people. I mean, the one thing that sticks out as kind of seems like it's missing, but maybe it's not, is um, specifically for those who are not believers, like pray for the salvation mm, yeah. of others. And then family is not really in there. I mean, brethren might be part of that if they're part of the church. But it doesn't seem like yeah. it has family. James 5.16, the text there says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So that I think I would probably have put the sick uh, yeah. rather than just brethren, but for one another. There's got to be stuff that we could put down for like, a, like references for the sick. And for the salvation of, right? Well, I mean, you've got James 5.16, I think we'll do the sick right there, uh, as well as a number of um, descriptive texts in which right. prayer is offered up for, for sick people, including by Jesus himself. Uh, for, who did you say after that? Like your family. Yeah, I mean, I think you can go back to the law and you can find that stuff. Or that, even that Genesis 32, who, who it's really on Jacob's mind there. Right. He's... he's dividing up his family because he doesn't want them to. And I think it just the fact that those two texts having just been brought to our minds are examples of those two things that we could definitely find 
uh, many examples of that. And I mean, what, what's a family? Paul considers a lot of these guys his sons and entreats prayer for them. Um, there's certainly an overlap between the, the household of faith, the, the church family, and individual families. And so praying for one another then, I think, also implies that we are praying for each other. You have the great example of Job, who when his children go out to feast and party, is praying for them and offering sacrifices in case they get a little tipsy or do something wrong. Uh, This kind of fatherly concern for his children and their spiritual well-being. Jesus himself, uh, for uh, Peter, when he knows he's going to go through a time of temptation, comes to mind. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, you plural, all of you, you know, that you'll stand. Uh, so people who are struggling right now. Uh, I think that maybe even to this, uh, this passage from uh, Colossians that just says ministers here, you could say that's, that's for unbelievers indirectly. I mean, we, we pray and pray and pray that God will change people's hearts. I, I wonder if, I mean, it's fine. I just wonder if it's kind of missing the, the order of salvation. Paul says, pray that I'll have the right words. Because the way that God changes people's hearts is the Spirit uses the word preached. So to just pray again and again and again, oh, the Lord, pray that change that person's, that unbeliever's heart, uh, you know, okay, great. Pray that God will be at work, that the Spirit will be tilling the soil. But it's like praying that your radishes will grow really well when you didn't plant radishes if you don't also uh, actually pray for the boldness and the clarity in your proclaiming the gospel. I mean, what, what harvest are you even praying that God will bless if, if there isn't? And if it's somebody perhaps you've tried and, and are currently on pause from bringing the, the gospel to, you may pray that God bring up someone else. Um, and I think that makes more sense than, um, or, or bring up someone to bolster what you said and reinforce it, or bring up someone who can connect with that person because they won't listen to you at the moment. That probably makes more sense than just God. Do an end run around your ordained means of changing hearts and just save that person. It could happen. It does happen. Maybe they'll open a Bible. Maybe they'll turn on the TV and see, you know, Charles Swindoll and a sermon that was taped in 1984 and just the, the spirit will blow them over. It happens. But it's not the ordinary means. The ordinary means is go and make disciples. While you're going, make disciples. Proclaim to them repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So I think we should be praying along that edge rather than toward just the end. Pray for the means that God has ordained to that end, right? Uh, and, and and pray for yeah, pray for the lost. I mean, and and we pray that while they're uh, outside of Christ, they don't do anything irreversible that's going to damage them or hurt them or that, you know, they don't die outside of Christ. We pray that, that uh, their understanding of who Jesus is might grow incrementally. But yeah, pray, pray for all of it. I mean, we, we have more than one text we could go to that essentially says pray for all things. Right? Take everything to God. Uh, another thing we might, uh, I, I don't know that it is explicitly about prayer, but cast all your cares upon him from First Peter, right? This is then pray for your own concerns. And I think, I mean, we're, we're just looking at a real brief description here. We're going to get to a line-by-line, question-by-question look at the Lord's Prayer, which is a model for us of how we should pray. And in looking at that, I think you kind of cover the gamut of the stuff and the people that you ought to pray for. Yeah, I think the other thing that's not on this, now that you keep talking, is you're all told in different <laughs> parts of scripture to pray for peace, mm-hmm. pray for your city, pray for, and I think people spend a decent amount of time praying for big world events or, you know, things that they feel are a threat or things like that. Like, I mean, in sort of a general sense, like I'm praying for the environment, I'm praying for, you know, the situation with Russia and Ukraine, I'm praying for mm-hmm. war, pestilence, you know, those sorts of big things. You pray for war and pestilence? No. <laughs> now, what text would you put with those if you wanted to? I don't know. Yeah, I, I think our prayer lives often are more informed by just what we inherit and what we hear around us. And they kind of become, especially in a, a church setting or a family setting or both, kind of 
echo chambers of repeating phrases we've heard from each other more than they are informed by the Bible. That's why I think it's so important that we get into this praying the promises stuff, that Andrew Murray type stuff, where you're praying God's word back to him and you know you're on solid footing and you're not giving an inordinately large amount of time to praying in categories that maybe are barely you know, popping up in scripture at all. And, you know, look at the prayers of Jesus. So, so for example, uh, when we get to uh, for each other and for ministers, you could say, well, Jesus gives us a great example there. In John 17, the high priestly prayer, he prays and prays and prays for his followers, who he knows are people who are struggling and are about to struggle a lot because he's about to die and, and be taken from them. And then all of those who will come to faith based on them. So he's praying for people who are not yet Christians and people who will come to faith, and people who will then go on to minister to more people. That's a broad prayer. Uh, Jesus prays in big, audacious ways an awful lot. And I think we, I, I don't feel a, a bit of uh, hesitation about praying, Lord, sort out this thing in Ukraine. You know, you, just, you're, you're sovereign. We have passages that we can look at, like the Magnificat and, and Hannah's song and other places where there are prayers offered up acknowledging God's sovereignty over the rise and fall of kings and nations. Yeah, that's all in God's hands. If it's, especially if it's something that's weighing on us. You're, you see the news footage and you're heartbroken. We'll cast all your cares on him. Put it, you know, bring it back to him. I think just about any of these things that people are, are lifting up in prayer, if it's um, rooted in God's character and coming from our hearts, here we are. It, the best thing to do with these things is to bring them in prayer to God. Uh, I, don't, I don't think we want to get real tied in to uh, acronyms or uh, model prayers or checklists or anything that becomes very transactional. Even the, the Lord's Prayer, which we're going to look at, um, I think is a, a bit of a starter prayer. Uh, and we'll, we'll look at that notion in a, in a little bit. Um, so yeah, that, that, that's an incomplete list. We've just beefed it up a little more. I'm sure that we could, if we had a, a whiteboard here and a lot of time, we could probably triple the number of who should you pray for, what should you pray for. And I think the, the danger is always praying too little and not for too much. So yeah, I, I, certainly don't read something like this, I don't think, and, and, and say, oh no, I've been praying for the wrong things. I'll stop. Uh, no, if you've been missing something, just add. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think that there are, like, even even the, the prayers that we do in church um, focus on particular things. Like, we pray a lot for people who are sick or going through a difficult time, mm-hmm. but maybe a lot less for some of these other things, you know? Because we have a list. Right, yeah. Interestingly, then, like, even the sort of format of the pastoral prayer, which uh, there was a whole article on, on uh, the significance of the pastoral prayer uh, these days in the, um, gosh, where was that? Might have been in Christianity Today, but I feel like uh, someone brought it up at Together for the Gospel and it was somewhere a little more Calvin-y. But uh, like the whole format of that winds up being de facto kind of set by the secretary. <laughs> Not even the current secretary, but like four secretaries ago, whoever decided this is the, the headings. She's got to make some headings and organize it in some way. Um, and you know, I'll be honest, there was a time when I put a lot more effort ahead of time into uh, a pastoral prayer and having it essentially written, uh, because there's a lot going on in a pastoral prayer that a lot of, um, uh, not only encouraging of people in the midst of praying for them, but reinforcing good doctrine and, and modeling prayer and everything. Uh, and I used to, uh, for years, I used to have a different church every week yeah. in the area and I would email that pastor and say what can we pray for for you and then a different ABC church I think I stayed in the region um, and, and I would ask them what can we pray for for you let's be praying for each other and and uh, honestly I, I, I would I'm remiss in not going back to that I, sh- I should go back to that uh, the thought of this prayer being very central to worship as much as the sermon uh, or even the Lord's Supper. I mean, these things are all along the lines of means of grace, as we've been studying. The word preached, uh, the, the sacraments themselves, prayer, meditation. Uh, these are ways that the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection are communicated to us. What about these two things that we're not to pray for? Not for the dead. Why would they even bring it up? 
Because like people were doing it. Oh, yeah, who's doing it? Roman Catholics. And so this is a document. It's just a uh, relic of its time. I don't want to say relic. That makes it sound outdated. It's a, what's the word I'm looking for, Aaron? Product of its time. Lovely. I'll delete that out. Make it sound like I thought of it. This is a product of its time. Uh, and it is uh, going to reference and push back against uh, abuses of the church at the time. Just like when you read the 95 Theses. You go, this is no, there's a reason those aren't like the statement of faith of the Lutheran church. It wouldn't make any sense. They were pushing back on things that were controversial in the moment. That's why when you look at the back of your, uh, your packet there, your binder, you'll find the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And in it, it says the head of the church can in no means be uh, the Pope of Rome, who is that Antichrist and man of lawlessness, etc., etc. I think I moved that down to a footnote. Um, that was why? Because guess what? The Pope at the time was Antichrist. Just a fact. It doesn't mean that that's a bedrock belief of Baptists at all times and all places. Who's the Antichrist? Always the Pope. You know, I mean, when I was a kid, the, the, the Pope uh, was this sweet old guy. And I remember my parents, uh, I made a joke about the Pope and get really mad. Like, like, what's your problem? It's the Pope you're talking about. I'm like, we're Baptist. They're like, just be nice anyway. Um, a lot of this stuff is going to reflect uh, the context. It's immediate context. I don't think anyone probably in these Baptist <laughs> congregations, or in this case a uh, Reformed or Presbyterian congregation, uh, is praying to uh, for the dead, but they put it in there because it's a... I don't think I would make that assumption. Why? Because I think that people, a lot of people in churches today are fairly biblically illiterate, and they would not assume that you couldn't pray for the dead. A lot of people have a weird mixture of spiritual beliefs that they get from talk shows and the internet and sure today I, but oh, there were no talk shows or internet oh, then yeah okay. um yeah so today I, I i have people hand me prayer requests pray for this person who died or it'll even be on the prayer sheet like the list of people to pray for and it'll be like you know bob simpson and 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 if i haven't prepared well and i'm like oh crap yeah pastoral prayer i'll be like lord be with bob simpson I mean, his family. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that is in there uh, maybe as a guard against because they've seen that people can gravitate in that direction against doing it again, going in that direction. Uh, where does prayer for the dead come from? Do you know? Well, is it in the Bible? Oh, the uh, Apocrypha. Yes, it comes from the books of Maccabees uh, in which there is a massive battle. If you haven't read the books of Maccabees, First and Second Maccabees, Totally read them. They're so cool. They're like comic book action movie stuff just waiting to be made. Mel Gibson for a while was talking about making the Hasmonean War uh, into a, a movie and like the Anti-Defamation League freaked out. They're like, we saw your last biblical epic and we hated it. Don't do it. Uh, but I think you can make a cool one. <laughs> I sure do. But uh, yeah, it's a story about a, a massive uprising and, and throwing the Seleucids off uh, and taking back control of the Holy Land. And at the end of a great battle, they go out and pray for the dead. And you go, oh, okay. So first of all, it's descriptive, not prescriptive. It doesn't say we ought to do this. Uh, and I mean, good grief. Because Saul went to the witch of uh, Endor to bring back Samuel, we don't do that. Uh, and then also it is part of a apocryphal book. First and second Maccabees uh, are part of a kind of second canon. And you will find these books in some Protestant Bibles. You find them in some Lutheran Bibles. They're generally between the Old and New Testament. And they're not considered to be inspired on the level that the Old and New Testament are. They are helpful, fill in the gaps of 400 years between the Old and New Testament. They're very helpful books. They're very good books. But... They're not scripture. And the church, uh, until there was, uh, well, I'm taking my ball and going to my corner and I'm taking mine and going to my corner, never really treated them on par, on equal footing with the rest of scripture either. So it comes from the Bible kind of, uh, but not really, not our Bible. And the idea is rooted, of course, in a notion of purgatory, that upon death, the soul isn't immediately... Uh, you know, placed either with Christ or awaiting judgment, but rather for people who die with venial sins on their conscience, they might go into a time of purification. And I can pray for you, speed that thing up. If I really want to speed it up, I can give a little money, buy a little indulgence, do a little 
dance, make a little love, whatever, get you out of there. And I'm in a weird mood today. I'm really amped up. I haven't, I haven't gotten to preach in a long time. Uh, and uh, in doing that, you then speed their purification process and allow them up into the presence of God. We don't believe any of that. So not for the dead seems a bit redundant. I'm a little curious um, exactly what this Luke 14 is. I didn't look it up, but let's look up both of these. 2 Samuel 12. Twenty-one to twenty-three. Anybody have that Second Samuel passage? I'm almost there. All right. The context here is uh, David has sinned greatly in the matter of Bathsheba. Uh, in in sinning, Bathsheba became pregnant, uh, and uh, the child uh, got very very sick. David was praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. Wouldn't eat. Wouldn't bathe. Wouldn't do anything. Uh, and then the child dies, and that's that's when this Where comes into place. Uh, Twelve twenty-one through 23. Just a little snippet there. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the childless child while he was alive. When the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that this child might live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he will not return to me. That is an incredibly sad passage, but also shows a couple of things. I think the faith of David, uh, and it's so popular for exegetes to say, well, there's nothing about babies going to heaven here. He means going to him in the grave. He's going to Sheol. No, there's hope in this, right? I'm going to go to him, so I'm, I, there's no point in me praying and, and, and fasting. Uh, and then there's also the notion that it is pointless for me to continue praying. He's now, he's now dead. He's, he's with God where I will go. He's with uh, our fathers in Sheol. However their cosmology framed this, it is, it is no longer uh, expedient to pray for, for this child. Uh, so that's, a, a, I think, a very good proof text uh, from the, the wisdom of King David uh, that praying for the dead makes no sense and is, is not honoring God. Absent any command to pray for the dead, common sense tells us not to. Uh, but they thought it, it necessary to specify. And then the other category that we're not to pray for are those who have sinned unto death. This opens like a whole can of worms, but it's an interesting can of worms. First John 5.16 is where the sin unto death comes from uh, and the command not to pray for those who have committed it. Does somebody have that or shall I read it? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Clear as day, right? So don't pray for that sin that's leading to death. Uh, I think that uh, we could look at Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 11 there as well to give us a little more light on that. What does it mean that a sin leads to death? Um, there's passages there about having uh, turned from the cross, you know, and, and, hold on, let me just find it rather than try to. And, and well, I looked it up, someone else look up Mark 3, 28 through 50. No, 30, not 50. Mark 3, 28 through 30. Mark 3, 28 through 30. Sure. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So there's the quote-unquote unforgivable sin. There's much, much ink spilled on what that is. Uh, the general consensus amongst Protestants is this is the sin of unbelief, uh, others have said uh, it's the sin of just literally blaspheming or denying the Holy Spirit. Uh, and others have said it's attributing, because the, the context here is that they've said, this man casts out demons by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And Jesus essentially says, you've taken something God is doing and attributed it to the devil. And maybe that's the unforgivable sin. Uh, I, I like what Spurgeon said on it, which is, we can't ever possibly know, and maybe the sin that leads to death, the unforgivable sin, is different for different people. 
Um, but once you've gone past it, there's no coming back. I think that's a little bit too much wiggle room because the context of it in First John is don't pray for that person who's gone beyond it. Uh, and you, if it's different for each person and it's just this kind of line in the sand that only God and you know, uh, then that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Do you want me to read this scene for six one? Sure. Starting at verse four, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. That sounds like what we're talking about is apostasy to me. Someone who has been in the church, this is all the rage these days. You, you, you can actually start your... Twitter following, uh, you know, give it a, a, a big boost by apostatizing. Oh, I was raised in this church. Now I see that it's nonsense. It was really important to me and I'm embarrassed by it. And kind of publicly and finally making a break from Christianity. I, I struggle with uh, people who I know in that boat even praying for them. Am I, am I disobeying scripture by praying for them? Is this the sin that leads to death? Is this the thing being talked about in Hebrews 6? It sounds like it. At the same time, though, there is example after example of people who have, in a temporary way, backslidden. Perhaps Satan just gets hold of some doubt in them or some rebellion for a time. Uh, perhaps something really tragic happens in their lives and they kind of lose their footing for a while and, and, and lose their heading uh, but then God brings them back around. Even Job, who is as steadfast as anyone, has that moment of, what do you think you're doing, God? And it seems like he maybe is at a crossroads there. So I think we want to be careful uh, to call it too quickly. We want to remember what Jesus says to the servants who say, oh, we want to pull up all the tares. He says, hold, hold up, wait for the harvesters to come. So I think you have to be dealing with a very extreme case before we have the biblical command not to pray uh, for someone. Uh, the, the sin unto death, the, the unforgivable sin of uh, Mark chapter 3, the taking Christ and making of him the public spectacle and, and there's no way to crucify him anew, that's, that's way, way out there. This is stuff I think that you see here and there. Not frequently. Uh, I, I haven't run into it much. Uh, but there have been people that, that I've known who are so full of, you know, the, the, the dogs and the swine to whom Jesus says, don't give the holy things, don't give the pearls, perhaps are the, the same sorts of people to whom we say, don't offer up prayer. Uh, they're so turned against uh, God after having tasted of the holy things that the fact that they knew the gospel will be part of the indictment against them and their punishment will actually be what glorifies God. And that's a hard situation to get to. And when you start thinking about guys like Paul, who seemed like they were really religious and had it all together spiritually, and now they are so hard railing against uh, God's people, and you go, okay, if he could come to faith... Uh, why can't this guy or this lady or, or these teens over here who have bought into the, the culture's lies? When in doubt, do pray, I think. Uh, pray for wisdom about who to pray for, what to pray for, but, but when in doubt, certainly pray. Uh, there's a couple questions here I want to read um, that delve into that issue. I think it'd be silly just to drop that on you and then move on. Uh, and these, I think, are from... Uh, Fisher's Questions, also known as the Catechism on the Catechism. How may those be known who have sinned the sin unto death? Anticipating the, the, the obvious follow-up. By the rejection of the gospel, which they once professed to embrace. By their malice and envy against Christ and the way of salvation through him. By their treating the convincing evidences of Christianity and the peculiar doctrines of it with blasphemy and contempt and by their rooted hatred of all religion and the professors of it. That's a pretty good description, I think. Yeah, I think that you definitely see that in uh, the occasional very public, angry atheist who spends all their time mm -hmm. railing against somebody they don't believe in. Yeah, there's no God, and I talk about it constantly. Yeah. 
Um, and perhaps in this we don't then see someone who uh, seems to fall away from central doctrines of Christianity while still trying to hold on to some vestige of worshiping God. That also is very popular. Kind of almost an empty vessel of, well, I don't believe the Bible teaches this. That's narrow-minded, and I, that's, that's out there too. And this, this, is, this is just something that evangelicals made up. And you're like, no, you're really kind of gutting the gospel right now. I think you hang back and you pray and you give them time and let the Holy Spirit do the work and, and you don't toss people. You don't throw people away uh, lightly. You don't, Jesus didn't. Jesus looked at people that were, by the world's estimation, beyond hope, beyond saving, beyond the, even being worth engaging with. And he went in and he loved them and he, and he prayed for them and he cared for them and, and they followed him and became our apostles and, and his disciples and the great saints of the church. Why are we not to pray for those who are known to have sinned this sin? Because the sin against the Holy Ghost is declared in Scripture to be unpardonable. In regard, it is a willful and blasphemous opposition to the testimony of the Spirit of God concerning Christ as the only way of salvation. You know what's interesting? It's like the description that you just read and then that, none of those really seem to apply to Judas even. You know? Right, he, he did like try to come back immediately, so it looks like... Yeah, yeah, and that I think is a different thing. That repentance, uh, that worldly repentance that leads to death, we can't, I don't think, suss out yeah. these kind of things. These are mysteries. And so, yeah, you, you pray for those who are struggling with their faith. I think, I, I think it should be very clear, and the Spirit would, ma- would make it clear in us if, if the, we ever find ourselves praying uh, for someone who has sinned the sin unto death, who St. John says, in fact, he doesn't even command don't pray for them, it would be sin. He says, I'm not saying you should pray for that person. I'm saying pray for the person who sinned the sin, not unto death. Pray for the person who's caught up in their old habits and their old life and their old sins and things. Moving beyond the four things agreeable to his will, the next phrase is uh, that we should offer with confession of our sin and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies, our prayers unto God. Confession of sin, uh, that doesn't just mean reciting my sins. Implied in that, I think, is some repentance. Implied in that is, in fact, hatred for our sin and grief over having committed these sins. Uh, the scriptures as a whole make that clear. The notion of go on sinning that grace may increase because you can just list them all off and get them all struck from the record. Megenoita. That is a very wicked way to pray and to live. I think of the tax collector in Jesus' parable who beats his breast and will not look up to heaven and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the kind of confession I think we're talking about here uh, in, in prayer. And, and of course, we're going to get to forgive us our debts when we go line by line through the Lord's prayer, so we don't need to dwell long on that. Uh, and then also with thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. And calling these things mercies, I think, reminds us that anything good we have is on God's part an act of mercy, right? I mean, when you see somebody who's begging for food and you go, oh, I know that person's backstory. That person uh, quit their job, just drank themselves into a stupor, lost their house, rejected their family, was offered a job and said, no, I don't want that, get away from me. And now they're over here going, I need help, oh, hand in hand. All right, if you give it to them, then they don't deserve it. Okay, that's called mercy. If you give them something. Uh, I think that's different from giving something to someone who's running an active scam. But uh, somebody who, who finds themselves in a very difficult position and you go, this is your fault. That's like our whole lives. We're in this position of I've sinned, uh, I've turned against God, and yet his great and manifold mercy just keep pouring, pouring, pouring out on me. That ought to be continually cause for thanksgiving. Anything good I get, anything at all, being able to stand upright here right now talking to you is a huge mercy from God and should prompt my uh, thankfulness and acknowledging his mercy. So we acknowledge our sins. That's what confession is. Confession, even in, if you look at the English word, con, with, fes, say, right? Uh, that's what the Greek word is too. Let's say the same as, agree with. Uh, I'm going to say with you, the stuff I did was a sin, but I'm also going to be heartbroken over it. 
acknowledgement of his mercies. I'm going to agree this stuff is all merciful and that's going to prompt an outflowing of thanksgiving and praise from me. And I think uh, the fact that adoration as a category, which we put into our ACTS uh, kind of acronym, is not represented here in this catechism is okay because it's a natural and necessary result and part of giving thanks. You're, you're not going to be able to acknowledge God's mercies to you if you know God and not find yourself going off on how amazing he is. That's going to be the next stop. So I think that's kind of Russian doll nesting here inside of Thanksgiving. Uh, but, you know, sometimes you want to pray and just praise God for who he is, not necessarily for how many times he forgives us. That's part of who he is, but there's other aspects too, right? You know, so I think maybe adoration, I think maybe that could have been a, a improvement to this catechism. Praise. Or maybe Keach thinks of praising God and praying to God as two separate but related ideas. I don't know. Thanksgiving then. Uh, so we have, I mean, the disciples pray in Acts 5. Thank you, Lord, for letting us suffer for your name, for finding us worthy to do that. After they got whipped and beaten. Is there anything in our lives that we ought not to thank him for? Uh, we do find things in scripture that are, that are so beyond the pale of suffering that the prayer is, give me strength to endure, not thanks for letting me go through this. But at the other side of it, I've known an awful lot of saints who say that real difficult thing I didn't think I could endure, I now even thank God for it because I saw how he was refining me and, and showing me more of who he is and helping me to, to follow him and understand him more. Uh, thankful acknowledgement of mercies. I've got uh, a couple of texts we could look up. Um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to 18. And Matthew 14, 16 to 21. While someone looks that up, let me read this quote from Jonathan Edwards. We are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sin, with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. That may be at least as good of a summation as Benjamin Keach gives us in, in the Catechism. And when he says an awful apprehension, that means a, a full of awe apprehension, not like a really bad apprehension. Man, that's awful. Yep, First Thessalonians, Aaron? Yeah, but I'm going to start at verse 16. Of course you are. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. I mean, that's pretty straightforward. That, that could be the lesson on prayer, right? <laughs> in its entirety. That's in all... Read that one more time, would you? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances and rejoice always. And yet we have that also in the same Bible that tells us turn your you know, laughter to mourning. There are times to lament and uh, yet there's also joy undergirding it. Uh, and, and thanks, gosh, it's, it's a hard, that's a hard command to, to give thanks in all circumstances. Uh, what about Matthew 14, 16 to 21? I guess I get that. But Jesus said, they need not go away. Am I in the right place? Mm -hmm. Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they ate, all ate, and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. I think that's a beautiful example of God's great mercies. Uh, taking what little we have to offer, multiplying, and uh, giving us more than we could ever have dreamed. 
Let's stop there, partially because it's a natural stopping point and partially because um, my voice isn't a thousand percent back to where it was uh, before I got sick and I don't want it to be uh, crummy and ragged during the sermon. Uh, so let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll pick up uh, next week, I think, with uh, Keech's Catechism, question 110, what rule has God given for our direction in prayer? Uh, and then that will begin our study of the Lord's Prayer, which will take us through to the end of the Sunday school year. Is that a thing? Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which, which not only speaks to us, but tells us how to speak to you. And Lord, we pray that we would uh, come to you not only regularly in prayer, but in thanksgiving, in confession, uh, a sense of awe, an awful apprehension of who you are. And Lord, uh, that we would not just pray willy-nilly, but that we would be careful about how we speak to the God of the universe. And we would look to the scriptures to help guide our prayers, uh, to help guide the content of our prayers and the uh, tenor of our prayers, that, Lord, we would not become overly familiar with you uh, as though you were not the King of kings and Lord of lords, uh, but, Lord, that we would know that, in fact, we can come boldly to the throne of grace and that that itself would be cause for great thanksgiving and, and praise, Lord, that, that even the fact that we can come to you and you want to hear what it is that we're thinking and feeling and fearing, uh, Lord, that, that you want to hear our praise, even though we only know the tiniest corner of who you are in your infinity. Lord, we're so thankful for that. We pray that we would uh, start every prayer with, with praise and thanks that we even can pray. And Lord, confession that we so seldom do pray as much as we ought to. Uh, draw us to yourself in prayer. Don't let us go to bed without having spent good time in prayer with you that day. Lord, don't let us start any day without looking to you for direction and strength and guidance. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would always come to you in thanks, not just before each meal, but before each of your uh, mercies to us. Uh, that, that, Lord, our automatic response in this life would be to turn to you in prayer. We pray all this in your holy name. Amen.